Welcome to Streams of Progress, where we bring you weekly conversations with many of the UAE's prominent leaders and thinkers. Each of our guests are actively contributing to the vitality of the UAE community and economy. Our goal in the podcast is to inspire you to drive progress in your professional and personal life. Hey everyone, this is Merad, and today on Streams of Progress, I sat down with Tariq Kabrit, the CEO and co-founder of Seas. In this episode, we cover Tariq's personal journey as a former venture capitalist turned entrepreneur. He shared his insights into the various challenges and the learnings he has come across during his entrepreneurial journey founding Seas. Seas is an app that initially started as a Shazam for cars, which then pivoted and evolved into something that can be described as a personal car buying concierge. It leverages AI through the use of image recognition, price comparison algorithms, and chatbots, transforming the long-winded used car buying experience, which typically takes hours and days, into an interaction that can take place in under a minute. So join us as we dive into the conversation. Today we're sitting with Tarek Kabrit, the co-founder and CEO of Seas. Before we get into what Seas is, can you introduce yourself? Yes, hi, my name is Tarek Kabrit. I'm uh, the co-founder of Seas. I started my career as a consultant with Booz Allen uh, a long time ago in 2003. As a strategy consultant with them for a few years. Then I uh, left. I joined Deutsche Bank in London working with their M&A team. Uh, we worked on a project here in Dubai. It was the IPO of DP World. It was actually the largest IPO at the time. And that was around 2007. 2007. Yeah. My girlfriend at the time, she's now my wife, she was, she was in Dubai. So I'm like, all right, my girlfriend's there. It's tax-free. <laughs> I want to move to Dubai. So I moved here. I stayed with the bank for a year and a half after that here. Left in August 2008, <laughs> so literally one month before the financial crash. Uh, joined a small private equity company called Siraj Capital. It's, it was a friend of mine from my INSEAD class. He was setting up the first SME private equity house. Uh, joined them. We went out to raise money in September 2008. <laughs> Perfect <laughs> time to go raise money. <laughs> that didn't go as planned. Uh, we ended up raising like $37 million. We were We were shooting for 150 uh, in retrospect now, I think it's a miracle we raised anything, to be honest. Stayed for two, three years with them. Then I joined Abrash Capital in Dubai. Soon after I joined, they were launching an SME uh, fund program. And I ended up moving into that, moved with them to Lebanon. Eventually, I ended up heading their Lebanese private equity fund. Did that for like three years. And then I wanted to come back to the, to, to the UAE, so moved back here. Joined uh, Mubadala's aerospace subsidiary. It's called uh, Yasat. I was heading strategy and M&A for them. And that was pretty cool. I've always been curious about space and all that, like like most kids. So I, I got to learn a bit about rockets and propulsion and all that. Uh, I went to SpaceX and, and, and got to see some of the fun stuff. Uh, then I started Seas on the side. It started taking off. Uh, so I decided to leave and, and do it full time. Along the way, I've you know, worked a bit in VC indirectly. I was a venture partner with Wamda for a few years. I'm a venture partner with Faisalia Group in Saudi. So, so yeah, that's me. If you don't mind, let's rewind further before that. What put you on the track to go into private equity in Seattle? But prior to that, where did you grow up? So I'm Lebanese. Uh, originally grew up in Lebanon. Uh, I did pre-med. I wanted to be a doctor, <laughs> like, like, like half of the Lebanese people at some point. So did that, then then I graduated with biology. I realized, okay, I don't want to be a doctor. <laughs> so I uh, started from scratch and did a BA in economics. And then I did a master's in finance and economics in LSE in London. 
talk about bad timing as uh, I was also applying for jobs in banking in London in two th- in October 2001 like a month after September 11th so again that didn't go as well so I went back to Lebanon joined Booz Allen it was the only like international company at the time so uh, so yeah this is, this is how I got there you mentioned you were with Booz and Allen and then you went to Deutsche Bank what was the transition there this is something I, I find interesting at the time Almost every, not almost everywhere, a lot of people in industries or working in corporations wanted to get into consulting because it was bigger salaries, you fly business class, the whole shebang. So, so I'm like, oh, wow, consulting is the, is the hottest thing. So I, I got into consulting. Then when I was there, like most consultants wanted to actually get into investment banking because <laughs> they're like, oh, well, you know, we work the same hours, but we get bigger bonuses, so we want to do that. So I got into investment banking. <laughs> And then when I was in investment banking, everybody there wanted to get into private equity because they're like, okay, we get bigger bonuses and we get some carried interest on top. So it's, it's so I got into private equity. Then you know from there I got into VC and then startups and and, and all that. And and I realized most people in private equity and VC actually want to become entrepreneurs later. And it's sort of like a full cycle. You go back to industry eventually. So so it's a, it's a circle of life. And usually you hear it from the other way where a startup successful work with yeah. the VCs and eventually joins them as a partner. Yeah. In your yeah. case, you were a partner with these multiple VCs and you yeah. went backwards <laughs> or forward. So, I mean, for me, honestly, it's, it's something, the reason I did it is, is a couple of things. So one is by interacting with a lot of these founders, you know, you see the energy, the passion and, and, and it drops off on you to be very honest that you get a bit of, Hey, I can do that. <laughs> it's uh, so, so you, it's, it's something in some areas of my life, there are some things that I like to push myself, like uh, when climbing on Kilimanjaro or whatever. But like, it's, it's things where you say, it's there, I want to try it at some point in my life. And doing the whole entrepreneurship journey is, was one of these things. Uh, I wish I did it a bit earlier or when I was younger, but I would have regretted if I was like 50 years old. I'm like, all right, I've never tried this. And uh, yeah. Let's go talk about your entrepreneurial venture. What exactly is Seize? Seize is basically, it's a mobile app that aims to fully automate the car buying process. So uh, the app has three main features. One is you have image recognition. So you see a car you like on the street, you snap a picture, we tell you what the car is, sort of like Shazam. The second feature is pricing. So uh, right now, if you want to figure out the price of your car, how much to sell it or buy it, the way you do it is you go on a classified, you look at like 10 cars, you do the average in your head, and you're like, all right, I'll, I'll go with that. So what we do is we just tell you straight up, you say the make, model, year, mileage, we tell you what the fair market value of your car is. And uh, the last feature is, uh, is a meta search engine, sort of like Trivago. So you tell us which car you want. We search all the websites, 16 websites in the country. We aggregate that data. Classified sites? Classified or? sites and dealership sites. So we collect from everything. We have 87,000 cars like, uh, listed with us. So we aggregate everything. We clean up all that data, normalize it and all that, and show it to you. And then we have an AI chatbot that actually, if you want it to, can start negotiating on your behalf. It contacts the sellers and it talks to them. It goes back and forth. Uh, and then drops the prices down, sort of like your mini personal assistant kind of concierge thing. Concierge, concierge kind of thing. And the last thing we, we've launched recently is uh, car leasing. So we felt there's a big gap in the market on the leasing side with millennials coming in, being asset light, they don't want to own stuff and all of that. 
internationally, 60% of people lease cars. Here, it's like less than 2%. So we wanted to launch the first car leasing platform that aggregates from multiple sources, not just one brand. And uh, yeah, we did that. We launched it three, three, four months ago, and we've had uh, incredible traction on it so far. The leasing plan is the ones in partnership with the dealership or even for Correct. the used cars Correct. you can't no, do it for the used with, cars with the brand new cars so um, you have the BMWs Mercedes of the world they all, they all have leasing programs they just don't market them you can't find them on their website you wouldn't even know here you wouldn't even know that exactly. where if you're in the states or abroad you see, it clearly even tells you the price yeah. it's this much per month it's like this is for leasing this is for buying exactly. like, here like it's, it's not there so there's a bit of education that needs to happen in the market in terms of explaining to people what leasing is to start with then how does it compare to buying? And it's, it's not for everybody. Some people prefer to buy. But if you factor in all the depreciation, interest, the service, warranty, insurance, all of that stuff, as, as long as you don't want to keep the car for three years, it actually more often than not makes sense to lease than buy. You hinted at Caesar, right? That's the name of the, the chatbot app. And how does that work? How does that user experience work? Yeah, so the app is fairly complex. Like it feels pretty straightforward and often it takes so much more effort to make it seem simple than than to make it complex. That's actually the harder thing if you can simplify the experience. 100%. So basically, literally with the app, you snap a picture of a car and within milliseconds, we identify what the car is, check the fair market value, show you the price search 16 websites, collect all that data, clean it up, show it to you, and then have an AI bot negotiate with the sellers on your behalf. And the whole thing literally takes like 20 seconds. And you feel like, all right, all right this is the, the results, and it's great. Even, even sorting the results, we use a lot of AI, sort of like the Netflix recommendation type of stuff, to figure out what to show you first, what's more relevant to you based on your, you know... Based on other things you looked at. Things you've looked at and, and, and all that. So, so a lot of tech goes into that background side of things. The chatbot side is basically, it's, it's called Caesar. Once you contact a seller for a specific car... It's sort of like an indication that you are a serious buyer for that specific make, model, year. And then the bot starts contacting everyone within the ecosystem that owns a similar car. And it talks to them over WhatsApp. And it negotiates the price. And once it finds good prices that it's lowered, it shows you these prices so you can So it's still a them. choice at the end. You still get Correct. multiple responses Correct. with the price. Absolutely. You still see everything, but basically... It's a filtering or... Yeah, instead of doing the whole initial legwork, hey, is the car still available? What's your final price? It cuts that inefficiency uh, effectively. And just to go back to when you said you jumped from the VC world to startup, why specifically this problem? Was it something you noticed yourself? Yeah, so I don't know much about cars, ironically, and, and I'm not a big car. I, I like fast cars, but like I just like driving them. I don't know what's the difference between eight cylinders and, and whatever. I can't even tell you if it's <laughs> six you still or know? Ten or Do you know now? I still no. don't know. What, now I know the make models because we use them a lot in the app. I don't know like what, what, what they are really. So the way it started, I was walking on the street one day uh, before I moved back to the UAE, I sold my car and then my security clearance with the government side of things on airspace took took a while. Obviously, I'm Lebanese. <laughs> so uh, I thought, hey, maybe I just buy a small car while I'm waiting instead of being carless. So I saw a Mini Cooper on the street. I was with a friend of mine. I'm like, oh, well, maybe I should. I like Mini Cooper. Maybe I should buy this one. How much does it cost? And my friend's like, I don't know. I'm like, which year is this thing? Like, maybe I can check it online. And like, I have no idea. Like, man, there should be an app where you just snap a picture and you get all that data and you can search for something similar to it online. And that's that's how it started. So, and over time, we realized 
you know, snapping a picture, blah, blah, blah. It's nice. It's fun. It adds some value, but it doesn't solve a real life problem. The real life problem is the fact that people still spend around 17 hours looking for a car when, when they buy one over three to four months. And the reason they do it is because finding a slightly better deal means thousands of dirhams in savings for them. So it is worth the time and effort. And the way they do it is still extremely inefficient. They either go on 16 websites every day and keep checking them, or they go on one or two websites and end up missing 70, 80% of the inventory out there. So and even the follow-up. And the follow-up and contacting each one of them individually, one by one. So we thought, okay, can we automate that and make it you know, 10x more efficient to use some startup lingo? And we felt that there is an opportunity there. So it started with image recognition. Correct. Not really solving a massive problem. No. <laughs> But then you realize, okay, we can take this further. Correct. Evolving. Correct. And you're right. When I see a car, even if I know it's a Mini Cooper, just because that style, but yeah. I have no idea what year it is. Absolutely. What specifics about yeah. this model. How much it costs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this was prior to moving to the UAE? No, the idea came okay. like right before I moved. Because basically I was waiting for my security clearance, which came like a month and a half after that day. So you didn't know you were coming here to start a startup no, at that point? no. So I started talking to people like once that idea ignited. Obviously, like I'm, um, I have I have zero fear on the whole share your idea kind of thing. Like our idea couldn't have evolved if I didn't speak to a hundred people along the way. So since that day, I started talking to people like, and and then it kept refining it. So from that day onwards, I started actively looking into launching something. But it's it's effectively when I moved to Abu Dhabi that that. Uh, we started actively, you know, developing the app. And but even there, you, it was still a side hustle, right? Absolutely, when it started. yeah. So it went on as a side hustle for uh, almost a year, a year and a half. And then we raised, uh, so I was funding it during that time, which, which wasn't fun. But I needed a job to get the money to pay the salaries. Like I, I couldn't do both without raising money. And it's very hard to raise money at our stage like, and still and not get like 50% dilution. Uh, the issue is it's a very technical app. So we needed a... A pretty hardcore technical team. A certain skill set. A certain skill sets and a lot of AI and machine learning. So we ended up initially bringing in four Danish uh, AI developers and they were pretty expensive. So our choices were we either raise funding at like a big round, like um, over a million and get really diluted because we didn't have anything or I just pay for it myself. But to do that, I needed to have a full-time job. So we did. we went the second route. We got to a stage where like, there was enough to raise money on, and then we raised money from a few regional VCs uh, as a seed run. And we mentioned earlier you're a co-founder. Who's yeah. your other co-founder? Yeah, so my other co-founder, which is probably <laughs> a unique mix, is my nephew. So my brother is uh, 18 years older than me. And my, um, I'm 40, my nephew is 27. So we're actually closer in age together than my brother. Yeah, my brother is married to a Danish lady. And, and, uh, so that's where the Danish connection That's the Danish connection. So my nephew is like, he's, he's born, raised there. He's, like, he's been probably to Lebanon two times in his life. <laughs> and uh, so they moved here from straight from Denmark. And he helped me really source the technical talent because I would have never known if a guy is good or a bad developer. So he really filled that gap for me. His background is technical? He's, he's technical, yeah. He studied at Copenhagen Business School, but he was working on a technical side of things. And as you said, you source the talent. Yeah. Was there a specific reason you source the talent from Denmark? Aside from the connections, was it that you maybe couldn't find certain talent here? Absolutely. At that time? Yeah, so still now, to be honest. Like, finding really good AI and machine learning guys regionally is... is 
super, I won't say impossible, like super hard. And uh, Denmark is a very underrated country in that in that sense. They have amazing talent, uh, excellent work ethics, and usually it's 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 not on everyone's top countries to go, you know, recruit from. They're not cheap. I mean, it's not like Ukraine and some other countries. But you get an incredible quality of people. And uh, given our Danish connection, given my nephew Andrew, he's, he's there, we managed to really pull together a pretty good team. Initially, we wanted one AI guy, but then he came on board and then he brought his friend and his friend around like, all right, we have four or five AI people, let's do more AI. And, and, and we ended up pushing in that direction. And it happened to be like a hot topic for you know the tech space and, and VCs and all and that. And when was this? So it, this was in 2016. 2016. Yeah, towards the end of 16. And correct me if I'm wrong, I read this somewhere. I don't yeah. know if it's true. There was a story about these Danish coders in a penthouse with cardboard boxes everywhere. Like imagery is a startup as it can be, yeah, <laughs> but with a Dubai twist about a penthouse. With a penthouse, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's true. So basically when they first moved here, uh, they all lived together. I, as C's, basically offered to pay half of their rent in order to use half of their house as an office, right? So suddenly they could afford a penthouse <laughs> in JBR. So they, they took this penthouse, but we didn't have enough money or because I was paying for everything to really buy proper stuff. So like tables? Literally, yeah. <laughs> so the table basically was some one of the developers connected with a girl on Tinder and she was leaving the country, so she gave him her dining table. And the dining table became our desk for like four or five people. <laughs> and then... Uh, Developers are, are, you know, like their own space and privacy, so it, there was no desks and stuff. So they started taking cardboards and, and making their own desk space. They even had, like, uh, windows that open, quote-unquote, automatically with ropes and stuff between them. It's, like, pretty <laughs> complex uh, setup. But, yeah, full, fully cardboard-based, uh, yeah. And you mentioned Andrew's your nephew. What's the dynamics for two co-founders' family? But in this case, even, like uncle and nephew dynamics what can you comment on that i think it's pretty cool yeah you need to ask andrew <laughs> and his perspective but for one it, it got us really 50 times closer than we probably would have ever been so we see each other every day we interact i think uh he has a nice link for me between me as a business guy and the tech team so he, he plays that role really well And I think because he's my nephew, he's, he's not shy to tell me that, hey, you know, actually my entire team is not shy to tell me <laughs> I'm stupid and this idea is, <laughs> is total crap. But uh, he does more of that because we interact more. And uh, and I think it's uh, it's a useful dynamic. So what's coming down the line for C's? You mentioned now you've gone into car leasing. Are there plans for expanding beyond, in the region, expanding beyond where it is today? Yeah, so uh, in the last four or five months, we opened up in Kuwait. Uh, last month we opened up in Saudi and our plan is really to open up two to three countries per year and to hit 10 countries in the next two years. So there's a massive geographical expansion plan that we're pushing on. At the same time, we continue to improve our you know, product features, the tech behind everything, as well as adding different new verticals. Like we wanted to get into leasing. We, we, we didn't want to create that vertical. We wanted to offer it as one of the options for our you know, users. But there was no platform, so we created that one. And over time, as you know, as we continue to find opportunities across the whole mobility uh, ecosystem, we'll probably either aggregate 
partner with or create our own verticals in it. As you just said, you've been expanding into those countries. I don't know from my experience what it's like with their platforms there, but here we have, like you said, we have 18 different, let's say, classified sites and all. So you're able to scrape from multiple different places. Is it as easy or do your guys face that technical challenge of when you're choosing a country, do they even have the infrastructure in place for you to be able to pull that information? Very good question. This is one of the key criteria we look into before expanding into a country. But then sometimes you really never know how crazy it's going to be until you actually do it. So there's a website in Saudi called Haraj. It's the biggest classified site there, sort of like the Craigslist of Saudi. Okay. And it looks like Craigslist in 95. Oh, very, very basic <laughs> yeah. UI. Yeah, but it's, it's incredible. I mean, it has a lot of viewership. It's, it's, uh, it's the most popular site there. But, for example, they have hundreds of thousands of cars listed. 80% of their cars listed are actually not cars. Okay. <laughs> it, it would be like a guy who has a seafood restaurant and he puts a picture of his seafood restaurant with a phone number and he lists that as a BMW 2012 5 Series. And the reason they do it is because then you search for a BMW and he gets a free ad basically pop up in your face. Wow, okay. Like you're not going to search for seafood restaurant on Haraj, but you would search for a car. And it's basically a way for them to have free advertising. So we're literally using our image recognition technology to figure out, is this a car or a picture of shrimps? And Prior to even putting into your... Exactly, okay. before we actually put it in. And these are some of the challenges we face. But at the same time, this is part of the value and the IP you create over time. It's like just cleaning up Haraj is, I think, is a multi-million dollar <laughs> business, you know, like it's... A, in terms of the image recognition, so it works on both sides. It's not just for me as a user saying, this is the car I'm interested in, where you're saying even when you're putting things into your database or yeah, putting absolutely. the cars into your database. So one thing we're looking into also pushing on the image recognition now is, is the way it works now is you snap a picture, we tell you what whatever the object is. We're, we're looking, we started on that like four months ago, we're looking to possibly expand that feature to become... Uh, uh, augmented reality versus a picture driven so basically instead of snapping a picture you just open the camera and then wave it across the street and then every single car you'll start having pop-ups saying like this is the price this is the make the model like like almost live data wow, versus okay. actually having to do something it'll, it'll be a i don't think it'll it'll solve a bigger problem for our users but user experience wise it's extremely you know like 10 you know 10 times cooler, more streamlined experience. I mean, you can imagine walking to parking lot, all of a sudden there's a, there's a click me, buy me now, yeah, yeah, <laughs> button above just, every car yeah. in a mixed reality if, if someday one of, one of the big tech guys really cracks the whole uh, lens, you know, They're smart glasses thing, you just integrate that into that and suddenly you're seeing everything with the prices, you click a button and then you, you can't even buy a similar there's car. There's actually so many more verticals one can yeah, find. Yeah, to get there. So let's move on to about you coming from PEVC, becoming a founder. What has that journey been like? Because you probably had some assumptions of what a founder's day is like. You interacted with them a lot in yeah. your prior roles. But now what is it like Actually, in those shoes. 50 times harder than you expect, obviously. There are so many hard things throughout the journey, but like one, one of the really hard things for me was learning how to manage a technology team. So in investment banking and you know, private equity or whatever, it's, you bring super smart guys, 
you know, Harvard MBAs, you pay them a lot of money and they work super hard and that's it. Like they're self-driven and they're in it for a purpose. And that purpose is totally different for, you know, millennials, tech people from Denmark. <laughs> so just me learning what incentivizes those people, how to manage them, how to, you know, interact with them was, was like a total learning experience for me. Like in banking, consulting, whatever, like you don't manage hundreds of people. Well, you manage teams of five, six, but, you know, over a 10, 15 year career, you end up managing 70, 80 people over your career. So I thought I, I, I know how to do that. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's not that hard. It, well, that was like I started from scratch there. And that's where my nephew helped out a lot because he would tell me how they think about things and their perspective. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, that's an incentive? <laughs> yeah, that's they care about that. We should get them that table. That's all they want. <laughs> they just wanted the ping pong table. <laughs> so that was a massive challenge for me. The second challenge is, you know, I've, I've never really had to build or do anything you know i was an, an advisor in in a million ways i was an advisor as a consultant as i was an advisor as an investment banker as an advisor investment advisor in private equity i was never actually doing something myself you're just giving advice <laughs> i just giving advice and now suddenly i actually have to go and set up a company <laughs> you know or like work on visas and residencies and pros and and all that stuff so so that was also extremely challenging then on the product and business side i think I was a bit more comfortable in that area, so it was extremely challenging, obviously, as well, but it, it wasn't as challenging as someone who wasn't on the business side of things. So I, one, one quote-unquote advantage I felt I had in this whole thing, two advantages, I think. So one is on the VC side, and I'll, and I'll tell you about this, but the other thing on, on the business side, I realized it's what many entrepreneurs don't do is step back from their day-to-day -day and check what are we doing like like why are we doing what we're doing and does it still make sense which problem are we solving is the problem we're solving a business or is just like a nice to have kind of thing and that literally changes from month to month with a startup because you're evolving you're learning you're adding users you're adding features and stuff and it's so easy for founders to just get stuck in the day-to-day -day operations and, and obsess about features and, and keep adding that without really stepping back. We've pivoted like three, four times in, uh, along the way. At some point, we literally killed our, like we, we raised funding from three VCs. The initial, the seed? Yeah, that was crazy. So we, we raised $1.8 million from them. And two months after that, we killed our app. Like we literally everything you had, we shut down the app. <laughs> so so we was pretty bold slash maybe crazy stupid decision, but we realized because the first version of the app was just the Shazam thing, and we connect you to cars for sale around you. Then we realized we don't want to be just another marketplace. There are too many. The bigger value add is really helping you search and find stuff. And we realized we to get there we we can't keep we had 400 dealers listed with us. So we're like, oh, that's a lot of value. Like, are we going to just throw all of that away? And we built a brand new app from scratch. Like we, and this is why at some point we went from being called C's to C's R, because we wanted to keep the old one in the app store, it's not like, to well, augmented reality. Is that R? <laughs> no, the R was for Caesar, and, okay. uh, and R for like the race version of an app. So we played a bit on that, but uh, eventually we killed the old one and then moved to this one. So, so that ability to step back and really check what you're doing, I think, is super important. And very few, not very few, but like. Not, not all founders do it 
as often as they should. And I think it's uh, it's a really useful skill. Like we we had 42 versions of our app in the last year and a half. So we're massively obsessed with <laughs> launching, measuring, fixing, optimizing stuff, and it makes a difference. Like it, it, it adds value. It's like build, measure, learn, and then that whole cycle is like where we're obsessed. We, we have like maybe seven tools that we measure data on. Like like it's like from Mixpanel, Firebase, like like a branch. Like every, literally, we have we have everything. So you're abing your abs. We're abing the av of the av. Yeah. So so that's that. The second advantage that that moving from VCPE into into startup is, I knew from day one what VCs look for. I knew their check boxes. I knew the language that you know the words to use, how to pitch, what what to cover, what what not to say, which is I think often is more important than what to say. Like. I don't know, VCs, for example, would, would hate people saying, yeah, it's a $3 trillion industry. If we capture 0.1%, then we're a $100 million company. Like, how are you going to capture the 0.1? It doesn't mean, <laughs> just because it's a tiny number doesn't mean you're going to get it. So stuff like that, like I wouldn't say, they like, do you have any competitors? No, we don't have any competitors. Yeah, we, we, have, we have a lot of competitors, you know? So, so that allowed me to connect with them in a better way and uh, just being honest and open and really going after a big market that is ripe for disruption just clicked. And it allows us to raise our initial seed round. Then we, we had a seed extension round. We're raising our Series A now. Uh, we have quite a bit of interest. Like, it's, it's very, very funny. Like, we had three months of, like, nothing. And, and then in two weeks, like, we have maybe five entities very advanced. And we're literally going to have to figure out who to bring in. If, I mean, until the money's in the bag, it's not done until it's done. But yeah, like it's it's looking positive. So hopefully, one or more of these will close, and uh, we'll get to the next phase. Are any of your initial seed investors doing a follow-on? They want to. Like we're we're just <laughs> uh, talking, you know, in, in agreement with them whether it's the best thing to bring in new money or just take their money again. It might be a network effect. It might Correct. be something else. Correct. Speaking of how you said earlier, Andrew helped with understanding how the technical people on the team are incentivized. Are there any role models or people you look to for inspiration in running your startup? Yeah, I mean, I don't have one guy. Like, I think I like different angles of different people. Like, like every tech or anyone in tech, like Steve Jobs is a massive inspiration. I really don't like his personal style or his management style, but just his focus and obsession and drive and, and all that. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Airbnb founders. Brian Chesky. Yeah, they focus a lot on design. Uh, they have a pretty incredible culture. In turn, I, I like the Netflix culture, so I've, I've read their <laughs> culture manifesto. I read a couple of books about their culture. Uh, I, I like I like cultures that allow you know full ownership for the employees and give them the responsibility to fail or do well. We do a lot of that. Like our guys, some of them just say I want to work on this this whole augmented reality thing I didn't even know a couple of th- our guys are working on it they said we want to work on it and they started working on it and they're like two months into building something around that and I'm like alright let's do that so everybody has like genuinely like full responsibility and freedom to do stuff like that we allow people to work uh, from anywhere in the world wherever you want uh, we have unlimited vacation days you decide how people ended up taking too few, so now we have minimum vacation days. So it's a bit Netflix-like. That that's similar. so you're learning from different different areas. And honestly, like oh, this whole startup perk fun stuff is 
It's very easy to do when you're starting off, but then when it comes time to put your money where your mouth is, it gets harder. So when we say unlimited vacation and, you know, we have VCs, VC round coming and we have a deadline and a guy says, hey, I want to go to Thailand with my girlfriend for three weeks. That's when you got to say, yeah, okay, have fun, you know, and <laughs> bite the bullet. And it's it's at those moments where you actually prove that it, it's real. It's not just like a marketing gimmicky thing. And we've gone through a couple of these, so I had to adapt as well to, to that. But uh, I genuinely think we have an incredible culture. We have uh, we've figured out our ways to really work on remote remotely with, with different uh, people in different places. And uh, we have on Slack, for example, on weekends... I get a Slack report every week, like how much interaction and all that stuff. We actually have often more interactions on weekends than weekdays. And it's usually people talking about a book they're reading or a movie they just watched and stuff. So it's it's a really nice, you know, homey culture. It's not a clock in, clock out. Definitely. If, if you're talking about books, yeah. you're talking about... Yeah. Are there any personal routines or habits you tend to do that are unique to you in terms of your management style? I'm pretty close with, with everybody. So <laughs> like... I, someone you know like has issues with their love life like I'm, I'm literally talking to them for hours about it stuff like that uh, i don't have a daily thing like i live in abu dhabi i work in dubai so i have an hour an hour and a half drive each way so three hours a day i listen to podcasts and audiobooks literally every day so i think i've read over a hundred books in the last year and read quote <laughs> i've listened to a hundred books but I think it's incredible because I don't think I'll ever have time to do anything like that if I wasn't forced to do that drive. And it's added so much value to my thinking and opened my mind in a lot of ways. I've heard a lot of people, they actually prefer commutes now because you actually get to listen to these. And another scenario for myself, I sit in the car when I just got home, like maybe five more minutes, I'll sit <laughs> in the parking lot. Thing, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's me time, right? It's alone time, which is yeah. good. All right. So if you could post a a message on a billboard, non-commercial, not about seas, okay. for people visiting the UAE, what would you like them to see? Hmm, good question. Uh, dream big. Just that? Simple as that? <laughs> Do you want to elaborate further? Why should they dream big? Because I think, I think a lot of people here just like limit themselves to, to geographical presence. They're like, okay, we want to do X of the Middle East or whatever. And a lot of like... It's not bad or good, like the copycat models type of thing. And, and that, by nature, ends up being limited geographically. I'd, I'd like to see more people saying, hey, we want to build something here and take it to Malaysia or Indonesia or something. You, know? you say you don't read books, but is there any audiobook you would tend to <laughs> recommend to people? Yeah, so one I really, really liked because it, it genuinely changed my thinking. It's, it's pretty basic and standard, but I think everyone would benefit from you know expanding their mind in that direction is the lean startup Eric Ries. the ability to really test things get things out to consumers and iterate and move fast i think this is this is super valuable obviously for startups but i think a lot of big corporations can benefit a lot from that thing even more than startups maybe benefit a lot from that way of thinking is there any personal hobby you tend to do on the weekends aside from slack <laughs> Uh, I love movies, so I probably watch a movie once a week on the weekend. So, yeah, that's that's something I, I try not to miss. I, I used to do boxing a lot. I was trying to get back into that, but then uh, I stopped again. So hopefully I'll, <laughs> I'll jump into that again soon. So movies, just to clarify, in the cinema or cinema, uh, yeah, Netflix? Yeah, cinema, okay. yeah, yeah. If you could see the UAE do a dream initiative, you know, like Expo 2020 is coming. The whole world is going to be here visiting 
if there's one dream initiative they could do like a moonshot project we see them doing a lot of things but <laughs> if they could do one of your bidding what would that be so there's one they're working on i'd like them to push more in that direction which is the mission to mars I think that's massive. I mean, it's at a humanity scale. It just takes things to the next level. And I'd like to see a bit more, maybe I'm biased because I worked in the airspace. <laughs> but Back when you were moving down, yeah, you went to SpaceX as well. Exactly. So. so I'd like to see a bit more, you know, space initiatives from, from the Arab world versus, you know, just uh, following China, Europe and the U.S. and that uh, field. If there's a piece of advice you could give your 20-year-old self, what would that be? Start to start up in your twenties. <laughs> Don't wait till your till your mid thirties. It's it's the opportunity cost is lower. The the risk is lower. You have you know that you have the energy. You have you know it's it's it'll probably fail because you don't have the experience or the network. But the learnings you get at that age and what that will do for you going forward in your life is is, is massive. Is there any last word of wisdom you would like to leave our listeners with? Well, that's a big topic. <laughs> uh, I think I think a lot of people here like are interested in entrepreneurship but are too scared to take the dive. I honestly think, you know, as long as financially you can afford to, you know, do it for a couple of years at least, I think everybody should try something at some point in the entrepreneurship space. Whatever learnings you get out of it, whatever, you know, broadening your scope and your mind and and the opportunities it opens are are, are amazing and I think more people should, you know, jump onto that versus just getting a nine-to-five job. The, the world is changing. People are very rarely getting what they want out of one job. So they're doing advisory things, freelancing on the side, and a bunch of stuff like that. I think that's a great, you know, easy way to, to get into the whole entrepreneurship space. But I think, you know, people who have ideas should try them out, like should have the, the guts to really push for them and, and give it a shot. Just to go deeper on this subject, do you think that has a bit to do with your community or how society portrays or looks at entrepreneurs or gives opportunities for them to, let's say, set up a company is easier or set up your startup? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in the Middle East, the, the culture is, is, is a bit risk averse. You know, people want to have their kids be lawyers, doctors, engineers, all of that. Just saying, hey, I want to do a startup was really frowned upon. But I think with a lot of that's beginning to change, you know, with a lot of the government programs, the support that's coming and and to funding accelerators, all of that stuff, I think it's becoming more okay. And with a few, you know, success stories from the region like Karim and Souk and all these guys, it's changing the mindset of everybody and saying, hey, you know, it's possible to do something interesting and big and and, and make money in this space. It's not just like slaving away and and then going bankrupt in, in a couple of years. So. Yeah, hopefully that's that's changing. I like that you said at least there's some learning you get out of it, even if it, you might fail. Yeah, which is still high likelihood a lot of people will fail. Yeah. <laughs> Nine out of ten, but but you, I mean, honestly, for me, I thought you know, having done banking and VC, I thought I knew business. Like like, um, but I'm, I don't think I'm going to learn much on marketing and business and strategy. Man, I was wrong. Where can our listeners go to find more information? about C's, about you. Yeah, and so on C's, just go to www.c's.co.co. Uh, me personally, just email me. I'm Tariq at C's.co. I'm not super active on social media. Like I, I got a message from Facebook like a few weeks back saying, hey, we haven't heard from you in 2,700 days. <laughs> Can you please post something? But uh, I'm super responsive on email. So yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
You can find this episode's show notes on our website at streamsofprogress.com slash C's. That's S-E-E-Z. We'd love to connect with you, so follow us on Facebook and Instagram or reach out via our website. If you can please take a few minutes to give us an honest rating on iTunes, this really makes a huge difference and improves our ability to reach more people in the UAE and beyond. We hope you enjoyed the show and look forward to seeing you next week on Streams of Progress.